everyone, and welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. Just want to welcome you to our podcast series that we're doing on Revelation. My name is Carol, and I'm just so glad that you're tuning in with us. Today is episode six. We are continuing our journey through the seven churches, and we are today discussing the letter to the church of Thyatira. And this is kind of a long letter, so I'm just going to start right off the bat by reading this letter, and I encourage you to join me. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, and I'll be reading it in the New King James Version today. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, let me just start off by saying that, again, we are approaching the book, the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ, simply as if we were somebody that was receiving this letter in the first century AD. And I encourage you to do the same. This is one of those letters that has so much in it, and I just don't want us to over-spiritualize it or overthink it. I just think it's best if we sit before the Lord and you ask the Holy Spirit of truth to show you truth and to lead you into all truth. I'll help take us through some of the historical points of this letter and point out some things, but again, I'm just a person, so I encourage you to sit before the Lord and go through this letter and ask him what message the Lord has for you in this. So I just wanted to say that before we begin, because this is a very sobering message in my mind. This letter shows to me a kind of frightening Jesus, not meek and mild from the Gospels. This Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, which is how John describes Jesus in chapter one. I mean, eyes like a flame of fire in this verse is a picture of anger. And we're going to see this in a few more episodes when we describe um, people, how they run into the mountains and they hide into the caves because they look upon the face of the lamb. They look upon the face of Jesus and they would rather have a mountain fall on them than to stare at the angry face of Jesus. We, that's part of revelation. We're going to get to that, but this is like that. These eyes, like a flame of fire, it's a picture of anger. And then his feet were like burnished bronze. That's de- that describes feet of armor. They are metal shoes, feet that are ready to trample on his enemy. 
And this is how he is introducing himself to this church because he has a strong message for them and he wants to be taken seriously. And so we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is happening in Thyatira at this time that has become such a serious problem for the church there? Now, Thyatira, in order to really understand it, we have to talk about the city a little bit like we have with the other letters. Because Thyatira is different than Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and actually the rest of the letters that we're going to get to. Because Thyatira is actually a junction. It's a crossroads. There are two roads that meet up. You get one that comes from Pergamon, which is the capital, and you get one that comes from Sardis, and they meet up in Thyatira. And so this place became a crossroads. And it was a crossroads for two very important reasons. One, for military reasons, and two, for commercial. Because Thyatira was um, a military base Uh, Yes, they had the temples and the other structures here that were important to Rome, but this city was geared towards a different mission than the others. Because when Pergamon was the capital of the region, what they did, they built up Thyatira. Oh my goodness, I'm trying to say that word over and over. They built up Thyatira as a city to serve as a garrison so that they could have a protective barrier to protect the capital of Pergamon down the road from any threat that would come from the east. So travelers had to stop here, which meant that because it was a protective garrison, a lot of soldiers lived here. They were positioned here. It was a protected place. Now with the commercial, because they were a junction, they also were a busy trade route. You had a lot of people that wanted to travel to the capital and then of course go on out east. But because they were a trade route, similar to Ephesus and Smyrna, they had the trade guilds. But as we shared in the episode on the Church of Smyrna, the church could not, or at least it shouldn't, be part of the trade guilds. Because at that time, the guilds were kind of like secret societies. They had strange rituals. They had strange observances. They practiced idolatry. They performed sacrifices. So it's not the kind of organization that a believer should be part of. But if you're not part of a trade guild, you really can't buy or sell your product. So if the church was not part of a guild, they were not buying or selling products, which means like Smyrna, they were poor. Well, every artisan in Thyatira belonged to a guild because guilds in this region carried a lot of influence. They were incorporated organizations, which meant that they could own property in their own name. They carried a lot of wealth. They could also enter into contracts for construction projects. And two of the most powerful guilds were those of the coppersmiths and the dyers. But there were also those who had the leather goods and the pottery, which were well known as well. So you had a lot of different goods coming through this area. Well, for the sake of time in this particular episode, we're only going to focus on two products, two of those things, pottery and the dyes. Pottery because Jesus brings the, uh, that imagery into this letter and dies because we see a connection to another story in the Bible as it pertains to the dyes in Thyatira. So let's start with the pottery. Thyatira was part of a much larger province known as Lydia, which was in a river valley. And this particular city sat on a river. And so because of that, the clay there was really good to work with for pottery. 
So they were known for their pottery. In fact, they still are known for their pottery, this whole region. And because of this, though, the potters had a very high reputation, and they also had a very high standard. And because they operated with a high standard, they were known to destroy any product that had an imperfection or flaw in it. They would never sell it. Rather, they would give their assistant a rod of iron and have them smash the pottery into pieces so that nobody could rebuild it and sell it or do anything of the sort. They wanted to preserve their reputation, and they were very successful. And we see again that how Jesus will pull in this imagery from one of the famous trades of Thyatira and use it in this letter, which we'll go into at the end. The other thing that they were known for, though, was their dyes. The women of this region, and history has shown this, they developed a special technique for their dyes to come with the come up with the beautiful colors they did for their products. And they had two main sources. The first one was a vegetable source, which was famous for their color red. And they used a red vegetable dye made from what's called the matter root. But the second source was from a shellfish, and it produced a remarkable purple. And it was made from the secretion of this predatory predatory sea snail that flourished on the coast of Phoenicia. And what they did was they learned a secret method of how to extract the glandular substance from which the dye was produced. It's, it's incredible to me what people did back then. Well, it was such a beautiful purple that even the, Roder, the Roman writer Vitruvius stated, purple, their purple exceeded all colors in costliness and superiority of its delightful effect. So their dyes had quite a reputation, but especially the purple dye. Because thousands of snails were crushed to produce such a small amount of dye, it was expensive. And so to be a seller of this purple or the purple garments or the purple dye, you were most likely a person of great wealth. Dyes were a very lucrative business and they're in a wealthy region. So they could sell these purple garments all over the place. They traveled near and far and people came from near and far to buy the purple dyed garments. So it was very big business. But this should ring a bell for you because this church, just like Pergamon, sadly, we don't have anything on them. But this region known for the purple dyes should connect some dots for you. We may not have a lot of writings about the church, but one thing that we do have is a story about a woman named Lydia in the book of Acts chapter 16. It says that she was a woman who was a seller of purple from Thyatira. That connects us into this a little bit. What happens in this chapter of Acts? Well, Paul meets Lydia when he's in Philippi. It was, it says that it was a Sabbath. And he went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And it says, we sat down and spoke to the women there. So they go down to the river. He sees a group of women praying. Now, to gain a better picture of what's going on in this scene in Acts, you have to understand a little bit of history about the Jews. See, in this area, Jews couldn't open a synagogue unless they had at least 10 people. And so until they had that amount of people, They would start prayer groups first, men and women. Women would do prayer groups, men would do prayer groups. So when Paul went down to the river, 
Obviously, they didn't have a synagogue to meet in yet on this Sabbath day, but there was a prayer group meeting. And they were doing this in Asia, but now they're doing this in Europe. So Paul comes to Philippi, goes down to the riverbank, and immediately can identify with what's going on because he was a Jew. There were women, there was a women's prayer group taking place, and it says we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So the women met for prayer. And being not just a Jew, but he's a smart guy, he knows the rules of everything. And so there's a good chance he probably recognized the Jewish prayers that they were praying. And therein lies an open door for him to share the gospel. He can then have a conversation with these women, relate on a Jewish level because he can understand their prayers and take it from there to share the gospel. Well, we discovered that this woman was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who says, and scripture says, who worshipped God. So she wasn't a pagan. She was a worshiping Jew. And scripture says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, he says, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So this woman, this seller of purple from Thyatira, now has Paul and his companions staying with her and her family. And so we can pretty much guess that since she was a seller, it's probably part of a family business traveling across the sea, going into Europe to sell their goods. And that's the tie that we have into Thyatira in the Bible. But we don't have much more than that about the church. So what can we glean from this letter about the church? Well, this church is obviously suffering from some kind of corruption and compromise from the inside. Like Pergamon, there is sexual immorality and idolatry going on. And Jesus is going to address it. But before he does that, he lists the things that they're they're doing that he actually approves of. You know, in all letters... It's interesting to note that this is the shortest approval Jesus gave to anybody. And when you get into the accusation in this letter, it's the longest accusation of the seven letters. So it's just kind of an interesting letter for us to address today. Let's start with the approvals. There are five of them. They were known for their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patience. Well, their love must have been special because it's the only church in all seven letters that Jesus actually commends for even having love. So that's something to point out. They obviously had a ministry of doing good deeds because that's listed here. And then they also had much patience in their environment. But I also find it interesting that he lists faith. You know, it's important to know that both uh, that faith and faithfulness mean the same thing in both the Hebrew and the Greek. So in both the Old Testament and the New, meaning that faith is not or was not something for a single moment for conversion, but faith is actually a lifetime. It's a life of faith despite what's taking place around you. And Jesus is commending them for their faith and their faithfulness at the same time. But he also says that their latter works exceeded the first. That means they were growing. They were growing in their faith. They were continuing on in their works. They weren't just resting in something God did for them in the past. So it sounds like it's a pretty good church. 
And you know, our Lord is honest. He will always see the good things in us. But then he also loves us so much that he sees the bad things that spoil it. And he wants the best for his people, for his church. So he addresses it. And he says something really profound. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, if you're receiving this letter in your church and it says something like that, then clearly he's talking about something specific. This time it wasn't a group that was infiltrating the church. It appears it was one person, a woman, and a wife. We don't know who she was, but she was a Jezebel. And this is the second time now that Jesus is pulling in a story from the Old Testament like he did with the letter to the church in Pergamon where he mentioned the story of Balaam and Balak. Well, now he's referencing a particular woman named Jezebel which is actually a story from First Kings in the Old Testament. If you don't know much about Jezebel, let me just give you a little glimpse. She was a Phoenician princess, the daughter of King Tyre. In Phoenicia, her name means primrose, but in Hebrew, her name means garbage. So you can kind of see where this story is going. Well, she married King Ahab of Israel, and afterwards, she brought her fertility cult into Israel and completely corrupted the land. She also brought with her all of the prophets that she had from Baal and Asherah, which was almost a thousand prophets, to replace God's prophets, which she did by slaughtering most of God's prophets. And then she set up her domain in Israel to completely corrupt it with idolatry, child sacrifice, and perversion. And so what she did and how she did that was Uh, This Jezebel, she had like a seductive spirit to her. She seduced Ahab to do all she commanded. She was a wicked, wicked queen. And that's why today to be called a Jezebel like this woman, it means it's somebody who seduces the minds of others, but especially men in leadership roles within the church. This is a big problem in our church. There are Jezebel spirits in operation in churches today that seduce the minds of people in leadership in order to get them away um, from what they're trying to do so that they can bring in false and evil practices and beliefs in order to corrupt God's people. That's the whole point of it. And when this spirit is in operation in someone, it's, it's remarkable how they can exercise control over people spiritually and mentally. Well, this letter identifies the woman as a self-proclaimed prophetess within this little church. Beware of such people in your church, my friends. Self-appointed anything for that matter. You know, in Ephesus, they had self-appointed apostles. And here we have self-appointed prophetesses, meaning she claimed to get a word from the Lord and then speak it forth. People who are self-appointed Expect others to listen to them. Now, there were prophetesses in the New Testament. In fact, there's one in the beginning of Luke called Anna, and I'm sure you've all read about Anna. She was a prophetess. But also in the book of Acts, it mentions Philip's daughters. He had four of them who prophesied. I believe that's in Acts chapter 21, but don't hold me to that. So I I do believe in the ministry and the gift of prophecy, and I believe that that ministry and gift of prophecy is open to both men and women. But scripture is clear. 
All prophecies need to be judged. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. No one, my friends, not even a prophet is exempt from accountability. And for me, it's quite concerning today that the number of prophecies being spoken within the churches with no accountability, no one judges them to decide whether they are from God or from the flesh or even from the devil. We have to be so careful. Oftentimes, when we hear these prophecies that people are speaking out there today, they're a mixture. You have a word from God, but also a word mixed with the spirit of the person. So we need to weigh and judge prophecies. When someone gives a prophetic word and then we begin a sermon or begin to worship right after they've spoken and we haven't done anything to test it or judge it, that's unbiblical. You know, if God really is speaking through someone, we must learn to start asking questions. What does that word mean? What must we do about that word? Is that word true? If God is truly speaking to us, we must learn how to listen and test it. So we have to figure out how to, how to speak prophecies correctly, how to receive them correctly. I truly do believe God is speaking to his church today, but we either err to the side of not judging them or we err to the side of being so afraid of counterfeit prophecies that we hear none of them. So we need to figure this whole thing out. Sorry, I went off on a little tangent. But a self-appointed prophet, and even more so a self-appointed prophetess, is very dangerous for a church. Because whether you agree with me or not, a woman can easily lead men astray. And I say that as a woman. Mary Baker Eddy founder of Christian Science. She converged science, theology, and medicine. And she created this religion that a lot of people follow today. Though rarely discussed, though, she was also known to dabble in Hinduism and other spiritual practices, and reports have surfaced that she even became a medium in the city of Boston. Or what about Ellen White? She's a founder of Seventh-day Adventist, who was a self-proclaimed prophetess. And she claimed to receive over 2,000 visions and dreams from God, had them published, and became a very influential figure in her time. And there's a host of many others over the centuries who brought in many false teachings into the church. And I'm not trying to insult or injure women here, but what I am saying Women can be very persuasive. And Jesus not only says that they have a self-proclaimed prophetess in their midst, but that she is teaching and seducing members of the church to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. She is teaching them pagan ways, pagan practices. She's leading the people astray. This woman, through prophecy, appears to be deceiving others. And what happens in some of these prophecies? What happens when we hear a prophecy out there, even today? There's the perception that these people are carrying this deeper truth. And oftentimes that's that's what's perceived. This person knows more than what scripture says. God has spoken to them. It's very subtle. But it robs from the simple message of the gospel because it's almost like you hear this whisper. Now, here's a deeper truth. Here's a deeper mystery. 
And Jesus is telling them that her teaching is actually from Satan. That's why he says, now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine, okay, there's some that weren't following it, who have not known the depths of Satan. So Jesus is talking about this doctrine a few sentences later, that it is the depths of Satan. Whenever a teaching is going beyond Christ, my friends, into something more, it's always suspect. Anything that claims to be deeper, that's what needs to be watched. This woman was not only teaching, but bringing the outside influence of the culture into the church. Sexual immorality was becoming a problem in this church, which means that somehow or through the influence of someone, most likely this woman, the pagan beliefs that sex was a spiritual experience was accepted. And not only that, all the idolatry that came with that belief system. So things are getting twisted in this church. Always remember, friends, Jesus spoke plainly, and the crowd heard him gladly. So he wants this church to correct itself. He wants nothing to hinder the true light of the gospel. And he says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she didn't repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the ch- churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So no one truly knows what happened to this woman. Jesus gave her time to repent, and she did not, nor those who were with her. Something obviously overtook her, and those who committed adultery and the threat of going into great tribulation. But again, it's not clear. We have a a frightening picture here, though, of Jesus's anger that he would do those things and that he will kill her children with pestilence. That's disease. That's a plague of some kind. They will be made an example. And he says, and all The churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. What a warning for us today against such deception. What does Matthew 24 say? That in the end times, false prophets and teachers will arise, right? There will be in great number. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, where have we been deceived? Who or what are we believing? Where are we bringing outside worldly influences into our churches, into our own lives, my friends? Have we stopped taking Jesus so seriously? Do we not imagine that he will hold his churches accountable? He says that he searches the minds and hearts. And then he says, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Don't forget, my friends, that our works will be judged also. Then he says, now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So some people are not following this doctrine. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So we come to the closing of this letter, and Jesus is encouraging this little church to hold fast until I come. Well, it's been over 2,000 years. We are still, my friends, to hold fast until he comes, despite everything that's going on around us in the world, right? It's going to get rough before the closing of this age. Don't forget that. It's not going to be this easy ride all the way into eternity. It was rough for the people of this church, but Jesus says, He who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end, I will give the power of the nations. And believers are going to identify with what Jesus is writing here because they're going to picture the local artisan's assistant dashing those blemished pottery pottery pieces to pieces, right? But notice something. In Scripture, it always says that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2.9 is a message to rulers of the nations. It's a powerful ver- It's a powerful psalm where he says, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things, so on and so forth, right? But it ends showing us who is really in control. Jesus, God's anointed. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is from Psalm 2, verse 9. What about Isaiah eleven four? But the, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. His word is going to smite the wicked. What about Revelation 12.5, Revelation 19.15, and many other mentions of the rod of God, the rod of his mouth. Jesus is going to rule the nations, my friends, with a rod of iron. He is going to break with the rod of iron these nations that are wicked, that are going against him. It's powerful, powerful imagery. Jesus does not want anyone or anything to corrupt his church. He is our defense. The shields of the earth belong to him. Never forget that. And then he closes talking about the morning star, where he says that he who overcomes I also have received from my father. He will give them. He will be as the morning. I will give him the morning star. Forgive me. I will give him the morning star. Do you ever go outside early in the morning as the sun starts to come up? The night is starting to fade away and all the stars are disappeared, right? There's usually one star left. It's called the morning star. That's another name for Jesus. He is called the bright and morning star. In other words, my friends, Everything else is going to fade away, but he will be the one that is left standing and he will be with us and he will be with this church. If this church can repent and hang on, if it can stay pure in the midst of everything, when everything and everyone else fades away, they'll have Jesus. And that's an incentive for us in the world we live in today, despite everything seeping in right now to corrupt the church, corrupt families, corrupt morality, hold fast to him because it will all fade away one day. 
and he'll be that bright and morning star standing by our side. I hope this blessed you. Let's try to remember to keep each other encouraged in prayer as we continue on this journey. We're so grateful that you are tuning in. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you.